Everyone has questions. Why am I here? Where will I go when I die? Is there really truth? But not everyone has biblical answers. Welcome to The Pastor Study, a ministry of pastorstudy.org. Join us now as we study the Bible to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Pastor Tom Brock. Welcome to The Pastor Study. Way back in 1970, there was a very schmaltzy movie called Love Story with the famous line, Love means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> That's not true. Love means regularly having to say you're sorry. Today, let's talk about how Jesus defined love. I got an email from a, a woman that doesn't like our show, and Pastor Brock, you teach homosexual behavior is a sin, and that's un, uh, that her point was you're hate-filled and you're ignorant, and I'm a Christian, and I love our LGBT people, and I affirm their lifestyle. And I wrote her back and I said, I love them too, and because I love them, I don't affirm their lifestyle. I care about where they spend all eternity. On this program, we're going to go back to the last night on, on earth for Jesus Christ. It's called the Last Supper. The next morning, he'll be crucified. But at the Last Supper, Jesus defines love for the disciples. So would you take out your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 15, and let's learn Jesus' definition of love. Let's pray first. Father, we pray now that you will help each of us be a loving person, not according to the world, but according to Jesus. And Lord, Holy Spirit, come and speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' definition of love, John chapter 15, starting at verse 9, he says to the disciples, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. First part of the definition, love is something that is passed on. God the Father gives it to Jesus, Jesus gives it to me, and then hopefully I give it to someone else. It's something that's passed on. If you ever had this experience, you wake up in the morning, today I'm going to be loving to my spouse, I'm not going to yell at the kids, I'm going to be nice to that guy at work, I'm going to be loving today, then you go out the door and you blow it. Why is that? Because we don't have it in ourselves. I can't, there are certain people in this world I can't love. So what I need to do is spend some time with the source of love, and then Jesus gives it to me, and then I can go love other people. But if you try to love them on your own power without spending time with the source, you're going to blow it. For instance, um, I bought one of these little happy dancing flowers at the dollar store. If you put it in a, in a dark room, it does nothing. You put it in the sunshine, it dances all over the place. And then at a garage sale, I got one of these spinner things. And if you put it in a dark room, it does nothing. You put this in the sun, it spins like crazy. Or I got this out of my lawn this morning. This is one of those things you put it in. It, if the sun hits it all day, it shines all night. My point is this, that you and I don't have the power to love people. We're sinful. But if I spend time in the S-O-N, soaking up Jesus Christ, the sun, I'll have time and power to love others. When I was a teenager, I had a, an aquarium in my bedroom. 
I had about eight of these round little green turtles. But after a while, their shells started to get soft and some of them would die. And I was told what you need to do every week is take them and bake them out in the sun. The turtles soak up the sunlight. It hardens their shells and they can live. You and I need to spend daily time in the Word, in the sun, listening to the Son of God, reading the Bible, praying to the Son of God. And the more time you soak up and spend with the Lord, that will empower you to love because it comes from a source outside of us. The first definition of love is it comes from Jesus and you need to spend time with him. Second part of the definition, look at verse 10. Excuse me, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And he says in uh, the prior verse, Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So love is passed on. The second thing, love is obedience. And this must have been important because he says the same thing three times in the prior chapter. John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus answered, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So here's the next definition. Love is obedience. It's not a feeling. It's a doing of the commandments. One of my favorite books is... Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And here, hear his words. Love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. The state of the will which we have naturally about ourselves is what love is. It's, it's, a, it's a will thing. And he says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. We are told we ought to love God. We cannot find any such feeling in ourselves. What are we to do? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. Do not sit around trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were to love God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. Christian love either toward God or toward man, is an affair of our will, not of our feelings. If we are trying to do his will, we are observing the commandment, you shall love the Lord your God. He will give us feelings of love if he pleases. We cannot create them for ourselves, and we must not demand them as right. But the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. I got a letter, Pastor Brock, I'm, I'm a new Christian, but I don't feel any different. So I'm wondering, how can I be sure I am a Christian? And I wrote her back and I said, feelings come and go. Feelings can deceive you. My salvation, hallelujah, doesn't depend upon our feelings, but on Christ's feelings for me, on his love for me. And the promise is, you believe in the Lord Jesus, you're saved, whether you feel it or not. So love is obedience. And look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Let's say you don't have much joy in your life right now. Look at verse 11 and answer this question. How do I get joy? Jesus said, by hearing what Jesus has spoken. In other words, when I read my Bible regularly, 
and hear what Jesus has spoken, when I go to church regularly and hear the Word of God preached, what I do if I can't sleep at night, and you can, it's a freebie, uh, Bible.is is an app you put on your phone, and when I can't sleep at night, I push the button and it reads the Bible to me. But when you spend time in Jesus' Word, Jesus said, that's when you get joy. But it's just not enough to hear it. You really get joy when you do it. One scholar said this, Joy comes only as Christians are wholehearted in their obedience to His commands. To be half-hearted is to get the worst of both worlds. There's that old hymn, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. If you want joy in your life, you've you got to spend time regularly reading and taking in God's Word, and then when you obey it, you get joy. Let's look at verse 12. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Next definition of love. Love is a command, not an option. You have to love me. You don't have to like me, but you have to love me. And what I think that means is you have to desire my highest good. When Jesus said you've got to love your enemies, he didn't mean you have to love what they do to you or enjoy their company, but you, you want their highest good. I remember years ago going to a church meeting and a young adult woman got up and she said, I have an enemy and I've had such bitterness toward that person. I started getting Christian counseling and my counselor told me, start praying for this person every day. And she said, it changed my life. I don't hate this person anymore. I pray for them regularly. And, you know, uh, we are commanded to love each other. We can't like each other necessarily. But you, do you pray for the salvation of your enemies? Look at verse 13. <clears throat> Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This, this is the definition of love. Love is to lay down and die, to put yourself second and put somebody else first. That's hard to do. Now, uh, I'm going to show you my baby book. My mom bought this book when I was born, <laughs> and it's got everything little Tommy did as a, as a really small child. And I'm so glad she did this. I love this book. And it says, little Tommy's first word, mine. <laughs> that kind of says it all, doesn't it? We are all born with what's called original sin. We're born with this sin nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And everything is about me, mine. And, and Jesus said, no, true love is you lay down and die to that. And you put others before yourself. And he said those words the night before he died on the cross. Over in London is beautiful St. Paul's Cathedral, about the prettiest church on earth. There's a big life-size statue of Jesus writhing in pain on the cross, and it says at the bottom of the statue, this is how God loved the world. I... Uh, at my house, I have about three different rooms that have a crucifix in them. 
And I, I, I love having this on my wall. It just kind of reminds me, this is how much God loves you and me, to go to this. Karl Barth was reputedly the most, uh, was the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He comes over for Swiss, from Switzerland to visit the United States. The reporter meets him, puts the microphone. Dr. Bart, what is the deepest, most theological thought you have had in your career? And Karl Bart responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> How did Karl Bart know, know that God loved him? This is it. The definition of love is Jesus gives up his life for his friends. I believe the man's name was Homer Larson, but during World War I, a live grenade landed in his foxhole. Homer Larson threw himself on the grenade. It killed him, but saved the rest of the men in his foxhole. I think he got the Medal of Honor, if I remember right. But here, here's what love is. The grenade is the wrath of God. Jesus on the cross throws himself on the, on the grenade. He absorbs the wrath and punishment of God toward our sins so that we could be saved. That's the best definition of love. Look at verse 14. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now I want you to look at that verse and answer this. Is everybody Jesus' friend? No, Jesus says, you are my friend if you do what I command you. There's an evil teaching called universalism. It's all over the church, sadly, today. Uh, it used to be the Unitarians were the universalists. Now you've got Protestants and Catholics uh, pastors teaching that universally, everybody, the whole universe goes to heaven. Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, Christian, Jew, uh, Muslim, everybody goes to heaven. Not according to this verse. Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Somebody told me recently, they went to a funeral. The pastor gets up at the funeral and quotes John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he stopped. After the service, this person went up and said, Pastor, why didn't you quote the second half of that verse? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the pastor said, well, you know, this is a funeral, different people from different backgrounds. I didn't want to offend anybody. <sighs> no, no. Not everyone is saved. You're only saved if you're a friend of Jesus, and not everybody is. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you disciples servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Get this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Here's the next lesson. You did not choose Jesus. I've told the story before, I, I knew a guy named Buddy, and he says to me one day, Tom, I ever tell you how I got saved? Well, one day my friend dragged me to this revival meeting that I didn't want to go to, but I went, and I, I was in the very back of the church, leaning against the brick wall, 
And the evangelist at the front says, if you've never accepted Christ, come forward. And Buddy said, I felt something push me in the back. He said, I turned around, it was bricks. <laughs> second time, if you've never accepted Christ, come forward. He said, second time, I felt a push. Third and final time, if you've never accepted Christ, he said the third push was so strong, he stumbled, went all the way up the aisle, got on his knees to the altar, accepted Christ, and was saved. Now, did Buddy choose Christ? I don't think so. I think Christ chose him. Now, you, you, know, you, you might say, well, yeah, but 30 years ago at a Billy Graham uh, crusade, I went forward and I accepted Christ. Okay, but you know why you did that? Because according to the Bible, before you were born, God predestined and moved you to get saved. You didn't do that. Uh, we, we did a, a TV show recently on predestination. And somebody wrote me, well, doesn't predestination simply mean foreknowledge? That God knows ahead of time that you're going to receive Christ, but it's still up to you. And I wrote her back and I said, no, God doesn't, the Bible doesn't just teach foreknowledge, that God knows the future. It also teaches predestination, that God destines the future. So if you're a Christian watching this show, you didn't do that. The Holy Spirit gave you the power to receive Christ. Um, you know, I, I, uh, this leads to the tough question. Well, why did God push Buddy in the back that night, but not other people that night? How come you're a Christian and your sister isn't? How come I'm a Christian and the man next door is? You know, we don't know. But I tell you, it's not because God foresaw that there was something about Tom Brock that'd be more open to the gospel than somebody else, because that would be salvation by my works. You don't want to say that. The only reason you're saved, I'm saved, is the sovereign choice and will of God. Why he chose me and not others, I don't know, but it's not because I was more open to things. <laughs> you did not choose me, but I chose you, said Jesus. And why did Jesus choose you? Look at the rest of verse 16. To go and bear fruit. You're chosen to go bear fruit. And my friend Buddy, I haven't seen him for years, but he was doing that. He was the youth director leading people to Christ. And the reason God chose you and saved you is so you would bear fruit. So let me ask you the question. Are you doing that? Are you using your life to bear fruit for Christ? Are you lovingly, gently pushing people in the back, trying to get them to Jesus Christ? That's why you're on earth. And finally, the last part of the definition is verse 17. Excuse me. Verse 23, skip down to verse 23. Jesus said, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them, the unbelieving Jews, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of their sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Here's the last part of the definition from that. The way you love God the Father is by loving his son. If you want to show God, your creator, that you love God the Father, you love his son, Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this. I love this story. You've maybe heard this story. There's a story. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man, widow, widower, and he only has one child, 12-year-old boy, who he loves. This wealthy man hires a famous artist to paint the boy's portrait. He hangs the boy's portrait over the fireplace. But then suddenly, sadly, the 12-year-old boy dies. And heartbroken, not long after that, the father dies. 
There's no heir. So they're going to auction off the whole estate. A, gr a crowd shows up. Uh, the auctioneer gets on the auction block, and the first thing he puts on the auction block is this picture of the son. And the auctioneer says, who will give me $200 for this painting? Famous painter. Nobody bid. 100 Who will give me 100 Gets down to 50 All right, who will give me $20 for this painting? And an old cleaning lady who worked in the mansion remembered that picture and how much it meant to the father. And she loved that 12-year-old boy, too. So just for nostalgia's sake, she puts up her hand, I'll buy that painting. And the auctioneer said, the auction is over. The man stipulated in his will, anyone who loves my son enough to buy this painting gets the whole estate. <laughs> let, me, let me give you the definition of love. Here it is. God loved you so much. He had a son. God sent that son into the world. That son went to the cross to die for your sins, pay your sin debt so you could be forgiven. And God says, whoever loves in my son, whoever trusts in my son for their salvation, one day they get the whole estate. If somebody were, was to ask you, what exactly did Jesus say is the definition of love? The quick and easy answer is, it's this. Amen. Well, welcome to the question time of our program, everybody. Again, Jackie is having dental surgery, so she'll be back. So I'm asking me the questions today. Here we go. Sometimes I don't feel that I love God much. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? What will help me love God more? Well, I think all of us don't love God much. Even the greatest saint realizes how sinful he or she is and that our love for God is just some days is good, some days is bad. But my salvation doesn't depend on my love for God. My salvation depends on his love for me. Hallelujah. But so, yeah, um, I, I too struggle. Lord, help me love you. So what do you do if you don't feel you love God much? You pray for it. God, help me love you. Uh, spend time uh, around Christian people. That helps me love God. Reading my Bible, praying helps me love God. Serving God helps me love God. Um, I like, I've said on shows that I like having a cross on my wall. I'm not a Catholic, I'm a Lutheran, but this reminds me of the love of God. So to put visual reminders in front of yourself or some of those beautiful paintings of Christ, uh, put all that together and I think that helps us love God. Do I have to forgive someone if they are not sorry or don't ask for it. I think we have to forgive everybody everything, not just for their sake, but for our sake. I mean, I, I saw this on the news once. Here was somebody who's, who was killed, uh, their sister was killed. So they show her on the news confronting the murderer in, in the courtroom after the sentencing and saying, I hate you. My hope is you go to hell and burn. And I think it was the same week, similar thing on the news. And the person got up and said, you know, what you've done is just so hurt our family and torn us apart. But in the name of Christ, I forgive you what you have done for us, to us. And, and my thought is, which of those two people are free? I think you want to forgive everybody, everything. That doesn't, and, and what if they don't ask for forgiveness? In prayer, I'd forgive them. I mean, I don't think you, if somebody abused you 10 years ago, I don't think you have to go hunt that person down and say, I forgive you. 
But if they come to you, and, but you do it in prayer. In prayer, you say, God, I forgive that person. Um, but if they do come to you, you forgive them. And I'm not saying it's easy. You might need to get prayer for help. God, help me do this, because I can't do this on my own. Um, what do I say to someone who says, God is love, there is no hell, everyone will be saved? I know someone who doesn't believe in hell because, and I think this is a Lutheran pastor, because their Lutheran pastor says she's not sure if there's a hell. What do I say? <laughs> I've quoted before, I, I used to be an ELCA Lutheran. I joined a more biblical branch of Lutheranism. The head bishop of the ELCA Lutheran Church was asked by a Chicago reporter, Bishop Eaton, is there a hell? Her response, there may be, but I think it's empty. What? Read Luke chapters. I mean, I, 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 I'll give them, you might want to get a pen out. Here are the verses that talk about hell in the New Testament. This is just a few of them. Matthew 13, 50, Mark 9, 48, Revelation 14, 10, Revelation 14, 11, uh, Revelation 20, 14, and 15, um, uh, Matthew 13, 41, and 50. I mean, hell's in the Bible. Jesus said there's a hell. And well, but my loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Well, Jesus said he's going to send people to hell. He says in, in the book of Matthew, Depart from me, you unbelievers, in, you evildoers, into the lake of fire. Jesus said those words. So yes, we have a very loving God who went to the cross to get us out of hell. But if you reject Christ, you're going to get what you get. And to have pastors in the church teaching people there may not be a hell anymore. We follow Jesus. We don't follow a bishop in the church. And if your pastor is teaching you that kind of thing, I think I'd find another church. All right, we've got one minute left. Um, does God cause things like plagues, viruses, etc.? Well, with the coronavirus, I'm just going to quote what the Old Testament says. I think it's Micah 6. Does disaster come against a city unless the Lord has done it? My understanding of scripture is God is behind the coronavirus. He's behind the social unrest and the stuff we're seeing in our culture. America has abandoned God. We've kicked God out of everything. And now we're getting what we get. And I think God is trying to wake us up, get America back to God. And he's using this disease. He's using the unrest to tell people, don't you think you need me again? Isn't it time for you to join church again and regularly start going to church again, pray to God again, read your Bible again, start giving money to, to missions again, serve the Lord in some way? There you go. Everybody, we'll see you next week at the Pastor Study. Go to pastorstudy.org if you want to watch our TV show more. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for watching the Pastor Study. You can watch more of our programs at pastorstudy.org. We are on the air preaching the gospel of Christ because of our generous support of you, our viewers. Would you consider supporting our ministry? You may do so at pastorstudy.org. Or write the Pastor Study, P.O. Box 41294, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55441. May the blessing of our one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you today and always. If you've been blessed by the pastor's study, would you consider a tax-deductible gift to help us reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ? You can donate at our website, pastorstudy.org, two S's, or mail a check to the pastor's study, P.O. Box 412, 
94 Minneapolis, Minnesota 55441. May the Lord bless you and have a wonderful week.